Well, good morning. Whoa, I am here. Uh, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, happy Father's Day. If you're in Kidmo, you can head on out. Uh, if you're our guest and you have a second through fifth grader, Kidmo is a, a place for our kids to have their own time of teaching and small groups and uh, fun and different things that they do. And so we're uh, thankful for them. If you'd like to go, ever, go out and see where they're going and take your own children, you're welcome to do that. Uh, so happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Is everybody awake? All right, let's do this since we're not all awake yet. Um, if you are a dad, would you stand up? If you're a dad, would you stand up? Let's honor our dads and say we're thankful for them. All right. If you have a dad, would you stand up? That should be everybody if you're uncertain about the instructions. All right. Now let's give everybody next to you a high five. Say, way to go. All right. Is everybody awake now? We could do some jumping jacks. Okay, y'all can have a seat. All right. Today we're going to continue our series on David, but before we do that, I just want to say thank you to a few people. I appreciate Stacy teaching last week while we were gone at the beach um, and everyone else that, that pitched in and uh, took care of everything. Normally, uh, we don't go out of town the same weekend that the Pollards go out of town, but uh, we were in the, actually in the same place. So, um, But uh, we appreciate everybody that pitched in and did that. Uh, also, I don't know if you've walked by the Kidmo room yet, but um, everybody that's pitching in in the Kidmo room with the back, uh, backdrop and stage is looking fabulous. And uh, so we're excited about that and think new opportunities that's going um, to afford us. And uh, just also want to say a thank you to all our men who are serving this morning and serve every weekend. Uh, you know, one of the things I truly believe is that men who love Jesus love the bride of Jesus, which is the church. And so we are appreciative for all that are serving. Several are serving in the kids and in here this morning, and we're thankful for all of them. Uh, and thankful Jeremy's here today. Jeremy is kind of the epitome of a young father who serves in the church. They got about four hours of sleep last night with a teething child, and uh, he's here this morning um, to make sure that all of this goes off without a hitch. So we're appreciative of Jeremy and his family and uh, all that are serving this morning. Let me just also encourage you, I'm going to finish the sermon a few minutes early today. And before you roll your eyes in disbelief, uh, it's going to happen. And uh, we've got a special time of prayer that we want to have at the end of the service. So we hope that you'll stick around for that. Um, I also want to recognize just one family who does not want to be recognized, I'm sure. But we're so happy that the Youngs are here with us today. You may remember the Youngs. Um, that have been with us before, who are missionaries in a very sensitive part of the world. And so they are just here to, to uh, be encouraged and to kind of strengthen and, and to rest and get away and rejuvenate to go back onto the mission field. So we're, we're happy that you guys are with us um, here today. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about the story of David. And what I want to find from today's story is we're not going to look at David as a father because at this point David's not a father. But what I want to talk to you about today is how do we deal with challenges within our life? One of the reasons we're doing such a long series on David is because the stories that we are most accustomed to hearing about King David are either really fantastic or really terrible. And so if you are only aware of a few of the stories, the story of David and Goliath, the story of David and Bathsheba, maybe you know that David is the father of Solomon, who is supposed to be the wisest man other than Jesus to ever walk the earth. Uh, I don't know where your understanding is of David, but if you have not done a wide survey of especially the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and, and First and Second Chronicles, you're going to miss a lot of what happened in this early period of the rise of the kings within the nation of Israel, which would then become the nations of Israel and Judah as the nation splits into two, and then they return back into one nation again after that. And it's really rich with the story of David. I, one of the things that always bothered me as a child, because I, one of the first stories you learn as a child is the story of David and Goliath, a story of conquering your giants. And and then sometime later, you begin to learn about Bathsheba. And I always struggled with some of the choices David made, and yet he was consistently said to be a man after God's own heart. 
And as we look at his life and we wonder, how could this man be a man after God's own heart when he did so many terrible things and made so many terrible choices? It's one of the reasons that I want us to try to understand how this all fits together. And today's story is going to begin a couple of weeks where we're going to talk about a change in David's life, something that was going really, really well, and then all of a sudden it wasn't going really well. And my guess is within your life, you have dealt with some of those times. And just like our video tells us, in those teachable moments, it's not so much what we do in one conversation, but it's how we teach throughout our lives. And so David teaches us through his life. And as we look through his story, I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning as you face some of the challenges in your own life. Now, dads, in the Old Testament, you were responsible primarily for the training of your children. In fact, there were two primary areas that it was your job in order to teach your kids. Number one, you were the primary spiritual teacher of your children. No one else was. Not the teacher at church, not the pastor, not, you know, if you go to a Christian school, not the Christian school, you as a father were the responsible to be the primary spiritual teacher for your children. All of the law, you would have been responsible not only to teach them, but to show them. You would spend a significant amount of your day doing that with your kids. In addition, especially men with their sons, it would be your responsibility to pass on your trade to them. Now, we live in a nation where a lot of our careers are based around service-oriented industries. But much in the Old Testament was based around trade. And so you would learn a skill, you would work on that skill, you would develop that skill, and then you would pass that on, especially to your sons. And so those were the two primary things that you would teach. Your responsibility was huge in the Old Testament, and I believe it continues to be huge today in how we teach our kids. Um, as we get started, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 18. As you're doing that, one of the things that we recognize as we do celebrate this Father's Day is that of all of the teachers that you and I have, our greatest teacher is our Heavenly Father. And so as we worship and as we learn and as we um, sing, let us continue to have that on our minds. But let's go ahead and open with prayer before I, I move on. Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it helps us to live through this life. I thank you that it is good, that it is inerrant, that it is something we can trust and have faith in the words that have been given us. Father, I pray that you would speak to us, not just in your word, but speak to our hearts through your spirit today. I pray for our dads that are here and the, the wonderful examples that, that they are for their families. And Lord, I pray that you would not only bless them today, but every day as they endeavor to teach their kids at different ages as they grow. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for this opportunity to worship freely here together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I recognize we, you know, for, for Mother's Day, we gave out flowers. And dads, I didn't think you really wanted flowers, so we gave out donuts. So I recognize some of you may be about to enter into a sugar-induced um, sleep. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you right up front something that you can use for the rest of your life if you need it. And then if you doze off, you know, somebody nudge them because there's more important things coming. But there are three very important rules that I've learned about life that I want to share with you. And guys, here's the thing. There's really only one rule for each age group. And there are three age groups that you're going to deal with with your children. And so if you just need something real quick here at the beginning before the sugar takes over, you can take this to the bank, all right? Rule number one is going to cover your children from birth through about the end of fifth grade, through the end of elementary school. Now, you are responsible, dads. One of your primary responsibilities and the number one rule that you have with children in this age is simply this. Keep your children alive. That's it. If you can keep your children alive, you have accomplished the most important role in a child from birth into, through elementary school. So if your kids are still here, good job. You're on a good track. Now, rule number two takes over from about the age of middle, beginning of middle school through college. Now, this rule is my favorite rule, and it is the one I like to exercise the most. Your number one responsibility 
between about middle school through college is at every possible opportunity, embarrass your children in front of their friends. Number one rule. Okay? If you're not doing that and you need some help and you need some pointers, spend some time with me. I like to think of myself as somewhat of an expert in this area. I like to do this to my kids. They love this part about me, especially Emma. When her friends come over, it is, the gloves are off. It is everything, it's all in. All right? So that's rule number two, and that's really going to take you through the end of college. Now, rule number three, which has gotten a little more difficult in, in recent uh, years, rule number three really starts around the end of college for the rest of their life, and it is this. Kick them out. All right? That's rule number three. If you'll get these three things down, guys, before you enter into your sugar-induced coma here this morning, then you are going to be a great dad, all right? Keep them alive, embarrass them in front of their friends, and then kick them out, okay? And you'll be good to go. Now, the thing about being a parent, and one of the things that I think we do wrong with holidays in America and in the world, because it's celebrated all around the world, is that we separate Mother's and Father's Day. We ought to just have a parent day, right? Because it's really hard to separate where moms, you know, we got to celebrate moms and all that they do. We got to celebrate dads and all that they do. But really, it is a combined effort, and both work together in order to raise your kids. And so, as we do that, all that we're going to be talking about today, similar to Mother's Day, it not only is applicable to our dads, but it's applicable to our moms. And today, especially, even if you don't have kids and don't even want kids is applicable to you as well. We're going to look through the story of David, and we're going to pick up with 1 Samuel 18, beginning with verse 1. Now, I want you to know within the context of the story so far, David has defeated Goliath. Everyone is going nuts. Saul is relieved. Saul is saying so many wonderful things about David, and then we're going to pick up with this verse. This is the height of David's life to this moment. He has, within one single action, become a national hero and an international threat. So David has become, in this moment, an incredible man who everyone is looking at, and then things begin to turn for him. All right? This is immediately after David slays Goliath. Verse 18 continues to talk about the celebration of what has just happened. Verse 1 says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. Big parade. Verse 7. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have, have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. All of this happened very quickly. David conquers Goliath. David comes into a hero's welcome. And if you'll remember at this point in Saul's story, because we're going to look at the difference between how Saul handles things and how David handles things today. Saul has been a man who followed God. He was appointed by God to be the first king of Israel. And yet what we've learned about Saul is he was an incredibly insecure man. Everywhere he went, Saul wanted other people to recognize him. Saul wanted people to look down at him and say, you are a wonderful man, Saul. And so he began to change his strategy from listening to the instructions of God to begin to do things that would bolster up his ego. And so as Saul did that, 
He began to turn away from the teachings of God, the commandments of God, and God said, I am going to remove the kingship from you. David is anointed as the new king that would eventually replace him, and Saul would not again see God's favor like he had early on in his reign. And so as they come together, David is about to ascend into the heights that Saul never would in the opinion of the public. And yet Saul, his his insecurity would begin to take over and he became angry. Why? Because people were beginning to love David more than him. As we look at this story, maybe you can't relate to slaying a giant and everyone throwing a parade for you. I myself have never had a parade. I think it would be fun. And, you know, we could probably whip one together pretty quickly here if you really wanted to do a parade in my honor. But I have yet not experienced such a thing. My guess is you have not either. But you can probably imagine a time, or not imagine, but remember a time when things were going really well. You were really happy with your life. You were really happy with your job. You were happy with everything that's going on. And then in a moment, things turned. Can anybody relate to that kind of a story? So as we look at David, we may not be able to understand his exact circumstances, but we can probably understand what was going on in his heart and in his mind when this happened. What often happens and what is difficult sometimes to understand, especially as a young believer, is that our greatest struggles are often born during our greatest triumphs. Our greatest struggles are often born during our greatest triumphs. In other words, when you are on top of the world is often when something is introduced to bring you back down to the rest of us. Now, the reason I say it's hard to understand this is because there is a a thread that goes through Christendom, especially in this nation. There is a thread that says God loves you, God wants you to be happy, God wants you to be comfortable, and if you will have faith in Him, He will make sure that you have those things. We want to believe that. We want to interweave the pursuit of happiness with our faith because ultimately all of us really do want to be happy. We all really do want to be comfortable. We all really do want to be at the top of our game and for things to go well. And no one really wants to struggle. No one really wants to struggle. But yet as we look through all of those who followed God in Scripture, they all had their struggles. And more than not were introduced by God. Because God is more interested in our growth than He is in our comfort. He's more interested in His plan being fulfilled than in our happiness. That is a reality that we live in today, that God wants to do something within you that at times is going to take a difficult circumstance to bring about. As much as I want to believe that if I'll just have faith... If I'll just go to church enough, if I'll just read my Bible enough, if I'll just, you know, tithe enough, if I'll just talk about Jesus enough, then he will just make my path straight and I will just walk into new levels of prosperity and happiness. That's what I want within me. I I want that to be the story of the gospel. But that story is very small. And that story is all about me and my life. And God's telling a bigger story through your life and through your family than just what's going on in in your circumstances. God is telling a story that is changing the world. And we each have a part to play. One of the things that is hard to grasp as you grow is you recognize that you are most apt to learn when things are not going well. When things are going well, my motivation to learn something new is pretty low. Let's just keep going. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Learning takes effort. It requires change within me. And I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. So as we look at the story of David, we find a guy that is struggling all of a sudden in a moment that should be his shining moment. Saul is saying so many wonderful things about him. He's promising him all these wonderful things. He's becoming best friends with Saul's son, And yet Saul's anger begins to grow. God often allows trials when things are going well. And God will bring you pain and he will bring you hardship. 
and he will bring you opposition. And if he doesn't bring it, he will at least allow it because he has a bigger purpose to fulfill in our lives. You know, one of the, some of the lessons I want to teach my kids, they don't particularly enjoy. They don't enjoy the lesson of working hard, although they do work hard. They don't enjoy the lesson of being obedient, though sometimes they're obedient. <laughs> they don't enjoy the lessons of making a fool of myself in front of their friends, but it's a lesson that they need to learn and I think they secretly enjoy it. If we look around the room, no matter what lessons we learn, the most mature that are among us, the most mature that are in this room, the most mature that are walking in the world today are not always the ones that are the most celebrated, but it's the ones who have been tested and tried in their faith. So many of the greatest bastions of faith in the world today, you have never heard their name. Now we celebrate. We are a celebrity-driven culture. We love celebrities. We love to put them on pedestals. We love to worship them. I mean, we all have our favorite athletes, our favorite entertainers. We have our favorite teams. We, we love to put people on a pedestal and say, man, they are it. And we do that in the church as well. Their books are always on the top shelf when you walk into the bookstore, the Christian bookstore. And they get books published over and over and over and over again while new authors struggle to ever get a book put in a bookstore anywhere. We like to, to celebrate celebrities. But when we look at what God is doing in the world, the greatest bastions of faith that we would be most served in order to emulate what they are living within their lives, we don't even know who they are. And many of them do not live anywhere near us. But they live in the places where trial is great, where opposition is greater. They live in places where the gospel is not shared simply how do you get to heaven, but instead part of the gospel training is a parent, a father, saying to their son, how do you die well for your faith? See, those are bastions of faith within our world. And they don't come through comfort. They don't come through our lives being easy. They come through opposition and trial. And one of the reasons that I believe David is, is said to be a man after God's own heart is not that David didn't make mistakes. It's how David responded to them. And so, Dad, I know that none of you in this room have made a mistake in parenting. I know I haven't, that I will admit. But we all do make mistakes. And there are times that I look at other dads and I think, man, they are such a good dad. Do you ever do this? And they are such a, they're such a better dad than me. My kids would be so much better off if they were, they, you know, they were, he was their dad. Sometimes I look at people who are great sportsmen and, you know, they're great hunters and fishers, and I'm not a great hunter or fisherman. I think, man, that's what a real man is. Other times I look at men who just are so kind and caring, and I think, wow, they're just, they never lose their temper. I wonder what that's like, you know? I would love to be that kind of dad. I look at other men who are just serious men of God. I mean, every word they speak is like wisdom. I mean, you just, you, when you know them, you want to just pull up a chair and sit next to them, and you just want to absorb everything they say. I think, man, that's, what, that's who I want to be. There are all kinds of dads out there that I see their different characteristics and think, wow, that is what it means to be a good dad. But in all truth and reality, God has given us as imperfect people not to demonstrate perfection in parenting, but how do we deal with our imperfection? David is a great story of imperfection. And he's about to enter a great struggle. Over the next few verses, what you're going to find are several attempts from Saul, not just to persecute David, but to end his life. Now remember, this is right after he's beaten Goliath. He is a national hero. And what we're going to find in these next few verses is 
First, Saul gets angry. It says a a terrible spirit comes upon him, and he hurls the spear at David twice trying to kill him. And then he sends him off to war and hopes he dies there. It says in verse 10 of chapter 18, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now, that's pretty good. Saul's still an accomplished warrior, and he's thrown a spear twice at David, and twice David ducks and misses. Saul, verse 12, was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him. The reason that Saul did this was not so he would increase David's reputation, but instead maybe David will go out to war and he'll be killed. A tactic, by the way, David learns and exercises later in his own life. So twice Saul tries to kill him. And then we read on, and in a third attempt, Saul does some really incredible uh, stuff with his own daughter where he promises to give his daughter to David. Verse 17, it says, Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the the Methelathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him, and Saul thought. Now this tells you how far Saul has fallen within his own heart, within his own soul. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. In other words, they are going to want to kill the son or the husband of the daughter of the king. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? I love this. He's slowly trying to back out, say, I see what's happening here. I'm not sure this is a good thing. Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul said to him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Which is kind of a gross dowry, isn't it? I just imagine the look on David's face when he gets word that this is the price. What? He wants what? Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins. Again, David didn't carry him. Would you like to be his servant? Take these to Saul. Uh, You know, that's no thank you. And when his servants told David, let let me skip ahead. David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son in law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. 
Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. I think as we go through this story, we see two very glaring differences between Saul and David. What we know of Saul's story, even though we haven't gotten there yet in this series, what we know of Saul's David is that Saul made some of the same poor choices, or David made some of the same poor choices that Saul did. But yet God never removed David's kingship. In fact, God said, my line, my son, the Savior, the Messiah of the world will come through your line. There was a difference between how the two handled their problems. Saul was incredibly insecure. And as I've shared before, I think this is one of the greatest traumas in our world today is the growth of insecurity in people, the growth of anxiety in people, the growth of fear that things will not work out the way we hoped they would. And yet what we see in David is great security, but not security in himself. As we look at the life of Saul, what we find is that anger, jealousy, and greed will destroy your life. And men, these are three characteristics that are often attributed to us, to men. Anger, jealousy, and greed. This is what happened to the insecurity of Saul. Whenever we are insecure, it breeds the need to control, even if it's a false sense of control. When we are insecure, we begin to look for ways to make sure things work out the way we want them to. Oftentimes, not only will we try to control, we will actually try to escape anything that would say otherwise that we are safe stable, and secure. And so we ignore the truth of what's going on around us. For Saul, he had lost his kingship. That's where this led. His reputation continued to decrease. And he was consumed with himself. We see it in the way he parents. We see it in the way he lives his life. And we see it in the way that he gives his own daughter in marriage so he can get revenge on David. A poor attempt to prop up his own insecurity. What we find in David is something very different. See, David is facing all of these challenges. He's sent out battle after battle. He's having to to avoid spears thrown by Saul and all of these little plans to get rid of him. But in David, what we see is not insecurity, but what we see is faith. And what we find in David's faith is that it will lead you to conquer your obstacles. You have obstacles within your life right now. I don't know what they all are. Your obstacles may be emotional. It may be fear. Maybe your obstacle is regret. Maybe your obstacle is insecurity. Maybe your obstacle is more obvious than that, and it's more physical than that. Maybe you have an obstacle in that you are in conflict with an important person in your life, someone in your family, maybe someone at work, maybe your boss. Maybe your conflict right now is with your own finances, and you're struggling to make ends meet, or you have taken shortcuts to get somewhere financially that you weren't ready to get to, and so now you're in bondage to debt. We all have obstacles that we deal with. Perhaps your obstacle is what you anticipated life was going to be. And now that you're here, it's not that. And so you worry what your future holds. With David's life, his faith led him to conquer his obstacles. Because here's what David did differently than Saul. David knew he was not in control. But he had faith in the one that could be. Saul knew he was not in control, and he tried to take control himself. That in and of itself is a major division between these two kings. And one of the primary reasons David is said to be a man after God's own heart. Because he knew he was not in control, and he had faith and trust in the one who was. So if you read the next few verses, and in the first 10 verses of 1 Samuel 19, I'm not going to read them. What we're going to have found is so far, twice 
Saul threw a spear at David. Then he sends him to war, trying to get him killed. Then he marries him off to his daughter and hopes that he'll be a bigger target on the battlefield. And then in the next 10 verses, what you'll read is that Saul then comes to Jonathan and says, I'm going to kill him. And it's an incredible story that you've probably heard before where Jonathan tells David, run, (laughs) go out into the field. I'm going to talk to my dad. And after I talk to him, if everything's cool, I'll let you know and you can come back. But right now it's not safe. And Saul makes a promise to his son, Jonathan, and says, I will promise I will never harm him. God is with him. But as soon as he makes that promise, Jonathan tells David, David returns, and we read yet again, the spirit comes upon Saul. He picks up a spear and again hurls it at David, trying to kill him. And David's able to miss. At least five different times we read in these few short verses, Saul tries to take David's life. Now, I have never in my life thus far had someone try to literally take my life from me. I I haven't. Maybe some of you have, and you have experienced that. I've never had to experience that. I can imagine when someone wants to actively kill you, and they have the means by which to do that, it would be incredibly stressful, (laughs) much more stressful than the obstacles I face today. David's obstacles were severe. What we begin to believe is whatever our obstacle is, it is the biggest wall that there is. It's huge. And yet, as David had faith, it's an invitation for us to have faith. And dads, I would encourage you on this Father's Day that it is how you handle your obstacles that is going to determine how you parent your children. Those three rules I gave you are fun rules, and there's some truth to it. You do want to keep your kids alive, and you do want to kick them out, and it is fun to embarrass them from time to time, but those aren't the bigger lessons that they need to learn, and the bigger lessons are not going to be learned in a sit-down over dinner or an accountability conversation. It's learned by the way we live our lives. As David has weathered all of this, he has shown us that what we believe will determine how we face our obstacles. What you believe will determine how you face your obstacles. Do you believe in an all-powerful God? If you do, you will go to Him in the midst of your, your obstacles. If you believe a lot of things about Him, but you do not believe in Him, then He will not be the place that you go for your obstacles. You will deal with those yourself. Sometimes you'll be successful, sometimes you won't. Oftentimes, it's not every time, you will second-guess every step of the way because we were never meant to be in that position. What you believe will determine how you face your obstacles. Whenever I face something that feels huge, some of the questions I ask myself is this. Do I trust in God's plan. Now, it's easy to trust in God's plan when everything's going well. The bank account looks good. The kids are doing well. Everybody's healthy. The outlook for the future is bright. Yes, I trust in God's plan. But what happens when everything breaks down and the savings account dwindles? Or maybe you don't even have anything in the account and your debt has to continue to go up just to cover the car that broke down. The house that something happened to. Health issues that were unexpected. Do I trust in God's plan? Now, trusting in God's plan is not simply sitting by and saying, oh, well, this is what God wanted, because I do see people who do that. But you are never meant to be just an outside occasional observer or what God's doing, and where you just kind of live your life and you're exposed to it, but you don't have any role in it. Whenever we trust in God's plan, we look and we say, God, I don't know why this happened, but this is the right thing for some reason. Something good is going to come out of this. I'm going to learn something I didn't want to learn, but you're going to help me to grow and develop and mature in a way I never would have matured otherwise. So when we trust in God's plan, we stop asking God to fix everything, and we start saying, God, 
I will go where you want me to go and be who you want me to be. I will do what you want me to do. And in whatever trials you want to bring my way, I will face them with you. Now help me to fulfill the plan that you have. Do you trust in God's plan? Along with that comes a second question. And I'll be honest, some days I'm better with this than others. A second question is, do I believe that God's will is best? And just like the first question, when things are going well, that's easy. God's will is good. Things are good. But what happens when they're not good? Is his plan still best? For David, it would have been very easy to say, God is at work. I have slayed Goliath. Listen to them. Sing my name and throw a parade for me. But did he still feel that way whenever Saul's throwing a spear at him, the king of the nation? Apparently he did, because he continued to follow faithfully. And what we're going to find is that in David's life, this is not a short period. We're not going to finish this part of his life today. In fact, we could spend several weeks on this part of David's life running from Saul. What we're going to study at different points is how did David respond in different ways to his obstacles, because he does respond in some different ways. The last question I have to ask myself, what do I believe about my obstacles? Is the ultimate goal of my life for me to be glorified, or is the ultimate goal of my life to glorify God? Whichever is the ultimate goal for my life will determine how I live my life. If I want to be glorified, I'm only going to do the things that make me feel good, make me happy, make me look good in the eyes of others. But if my goal is to glorify God, then I am going to have to submit to his will. And at times he is going to make things very difficult. And he could ask me to forfeit my life as a testimony to the gospel. Do I believe that his way is best? And do I want him to have the glory? Do I want to have the glory? And David's going to struggle with this. He's not a consistent character in these questions. He's going to go back and forth. But what we find is that he often comes back to this. And I want to read a psalm to you in, in just a minute that shows what's going on in his heart. So as you read through 1 Samuel, as you read through Kings, as you read through Chronicles, what you're going to find are the details of what happened. But if you want to know what's going on in David's heart, you've got to go to the Psalms. That's where he says what's happening within him. They are his heartfelt, guttural prayers to God in the midst of all of these troubles. Before we do that, Dad, you teach your children how to face their obstacles by how you face your own. How do you face your obstacles? Do you escape? Do you ignore them? Do you face them head on? Do you make up your decision and do what you think is best? Or do you go before God and let Him help you with it? Some of the ways that men respond to opposition, I know this is true because I am one. Sometimes we do ignore it. We just pretend it's not there. It's one of the challenges I've shared with you in, in my own life that I will allow entertainment to help me to escape from the things I need to do and address. I'll sit down and watch a movie. I'll watch a whole season of something because my mind disengages from what I need to deal with. And I love movies and TV. I can ignore it. That's one way to do it. Another way that men often deal with their obstacles is they lash out in anger they defy that this is what's actually happening. This is not going to happen to me. And in anger, they lash out to others. Sometimes men, in a false belief of what it means to be a man, just don't say anything. We internalize it, and it just festers within us like a poison that's ready to explode. We just keep it all in ourselves. I'm a man. Men don't have problems. Nothing bothers me. All the while, we are rotting inside. We just don't say anything. Insecurity causes us to internalize it. 
anger causes us to internalize it, and at the end of all that really is one key thing, and that is fear. Fear is what drives our anger and our insecurity. We won't admit it because men aren't afraid. But the truth is that fear is something that we all have to deal with in life. Fear of the unknown, fear that things won't be what we hoped, fear that we'll lose what we have. All kinds of things we can fear. How do you respond to your opposition? What do you do? This is how David responded to his, and this is what I want to end with today. This is found in Psalm 69, and you'll find that many of the Psalms will actually come, if you, if you read the Psalms in, in a chronological order with the events of David's life, you will see as something happens in his life, you'll see a Psalm that will address that time of his life. This is one that addresses that time of his life, beginning with verse 7. It says, for it is your sake that I have borne reproach. I'll start with verse 1. I'm jumping ahead. Verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. And in this section, one of the things that not only pulls at me, it is his description of how he feels. We can easily think, well, David's so confident. None of this stuff bothers him. He's just dancing around, missing spears and going out to battle. And he's just, hey, this is not great. But what Psalms tells us is that his heart is he's drowning. He's drowning in fear. He's drowning in how he's going to deal with all of this. And what he moves to is not anger or blame, but he moves to repentance. This is a prayer of not only acknowledging where he is, but he himself is repenting for the wrongs that he has done rather than focusing on the wrongs that are being done to him. Verse 7, For it is your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards who make songs about me, which can't be a good song. <laughs> but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies from, from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. And in this we see his worship. This is who God is, who God is great. God is everything. And he's going through this because he is following God and God's instructions in his life. And yet God is worthy to be worshipped even in our time of opposition. Because God is good, God is great, God is loving, God is merciful and kind, God is everlasting, and He has given us not only His Son, but also the Holy Spirit, that we can walk with Him and know Him forever. Verse 19, he says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are well known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. 
They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom they have struck down, and they recount the pain of those who have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And in this we find his prayer for intervention. When you live by faith, you don't ignore your obstacles. You don't pretend they're not there. You don't try to control them. You cry out for God to be at work because this is His plan. And he closes this psalm, verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble... See it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and, go- and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. As he ends this psalm, he ends it with worship and praise. Even though nothing has changed, the men and women, all of us deal with obstacles. If I can teach my kids one thing, I want to teach them to love Jesus because that will carry them through everything else. But if there's one life lesson I want them to learn from me, is how to handle your obstacles. You do not have to be overcome by them. You don't have to give in to them. And what we have a tendency, men, to do is to hide them. God doesn't want us to hide them. He wants us to celebrate God's work within them. That we will worship Him even when everything seems to be going wrong. In David's disciplines, what we find that he has developed within his life, a discipline of worship, a discipline of repentance, a discipline of prayer for intervention, and a discipline of faith in God's provision, whatever that may be. We give our whole lives and hearts to Him. So I will leave you with this. Men of faith, teach your children to face their obstacles with faith. Teach your children to face your obstacles with faith. We're going we're gonna to close with the video and then we're going to have our closing song. I want you to stick around just for, just for a few short minutes after. But let us teach our kids that they can deal with this.